the uh, the funky tones of uh, Kick-Ass intro music here for Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday here on Two Double X. Now, regular listeners will realise that uh, I have a condition known as Fuzzy Logic Syndrome, and it causes me to go into a studio and talk to interesting people about interesting topics. Uh, even older listeners will appreciate the voice of Mike McRae, who is in fact a reformed fuzzy logica. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Rod. It's weird oh. being back here in the... Hey, I'll turn your microphone on. Well, that would help. There we go. So weird being back here in the studio. Um, I, I have reformed, though, so hopefully I won't get addicted again. But good morning, or yeah, good morning to all. And, well, you've written this book now. It's the reason I've dragged you into the studio, and it's called Unwell, What Makes a Disease a disease. <laughs> Why did you write this book, Mike? Um, well, I, I guess over the years I've been uh, fascinated by concept of health and disease. Now, many years ago, long before I was ever you know, doing fuzzy logic, and we go right back in my early 20s even, um, I was in pathology. So I was the sort of person that if you went to the doctor, uh, you had blood taken, uh, urine sample, name of bodily fluid, I pretty much played with it. Um, I would be the person who would get that, and I'd have to run a diagnostic test on it, and I'd come out with a whole bunch of numbers, those numbers go back to the doctor, and the doctor would come back to you and say yes or no as to whether you had some sort of a condition, uh, disease disorder. Um, I was the person responsible for that. And so I think I've always been fascinated by where we draw the line between you being healthy or not being healthy. It reminds me of the definition of a weed. Is it similar? Yeah, I guess. I mean, both of those are very contextual things. They come down to value, really. I mean, nature doesn't really categorize plants into being of the weed variety or the crop variety or, you know, the pretty variety you want in your garden. Nature just makes plants. <laughs> and we are the ones who then decide whether we want that to be a valuable thing or not. I think the best definition of weed I've heard is a weed is a plant growing somewhere where you don't want it. Exactly. It's a value thing. Now, values aren't things that nature give us. You know, they, values are things that we want or don't want. So they're variable within humans. Across the, the globe, we have different cultures, different societies that might value things in different ways. And disease has that same value contingent component, but we don't stop to think about that very much. We tend to think about diseases and disorders almost as if nature ordains it in some way, and then we dig through and we find these things. It's a bit like paleontologists digging up bones and going, we found a disease, you know, and it's always been there, without actually going, well, no, actually, we identify diseases based on what we find valuable. Well, I have to say that fuzzy logic syndrome is a condition that I'm very pleased to have but in the story you opened with just there, you were talking about the medical expert, right? The doctor, the specialist or someone, and that person says, you have a disease. Uh, is that right? Is that what you found? Well, yeah, often what happens is you go along to a doctor and they will have a certain numbers. So they've got, uh, say, blood test results. And they will then go to uh, a categorization. They'll go to a, a big list. And they could get this from one or two books, depending on what sort of doctor they are. So the World Health Organization, they actually produce one great big book of diseases, the ICD. And in that is a list of all the diseases that you can think of. Um, and maybe some you can't think of. And they come out with a new one every now and then. In fact, they published maybe two months ago the latest, which is number 11. 
and that has a recategorization of some diseases. So things before that were considered a disease in one area, they've put into others. But it's got some new ones in there as well. So gaming disorder, for instance, is now considered a disease. Gaming, Wasn't before. What, computer gaming? Computer gaming. So it is now possible, um, at least in a medical sense, to computer game too much. So before, if you went along and you spoke to your psychologist, oh. they might say, well, you might want to cut back on the gaming. Now there is an actual category for it. There is a code. And that code... Um, means that you might be able to claim certain benefits back from uh, you know, oh, welfare. So it has it a very real impact. Codes do. So these codes allow governments to actually uh, weave that in with, with how they pay for certain things. These codes also work in a um, research sense. So there, there's a real world implication with these books because they are the things that say this is a bona fide condition versus, well, there is no consensus behind that. Well, what about this thing? Does this thing that you, this publication you're talking about, is it related to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual? Is that the same one? It is. So that's the uh, that's actually produced by a different group of people, the APA in America. Okay. Um, but they do dovetail together, so they're aware of one another's presence, and they are the two big tones of all things right. that can affect you. Now, the um, ICD does have a mental health component, so that that's pretty much everything. Whereas the you know the DSM that actually has Everything it's there all is. mental health. It's all mental health in that yeah. one. There. And there's some weird things in that book, aren't there? Some things which you go, is that really disease? I, I can't quote any off the top of my head, but it's famous for, oh, I don't know, fuzzy logic syndrome? Maybe that's not really in Well, there. on a more serious level, homosexuality used to actually be considered a, a, a disease in, in the DSM. And over time, that has actually shifted in various forms until eventually they got rid of that altogether. So these days, you know, your sexuality can't be pathologised quite so easily unless it causes you great harm. So unless you are actually so uh, torn up about your sexuality in general, then that now is considered to be a mental health problem. So you can't be these days homosexuality and disease, but that didn't used to be the case. So there's, there's a conversation that goes around the categorisation of diseases to say what should be in there, and what should not be in so there. So there's this interplay between social norms and the expert opinion and the inverted commas, I'm doing the finger waving <laughs> thing here, the patient. Exactly. And so what happens is in the lead up to these publications coming out, there'll be a conversation that will happen. And so you'll have uh, experts who are people who have been researching this or people who are applying it in the field. They'll do various aspects of research and they will either petition, they'll write into the World Health Organization and say, here's our opinion. They'll write papers on it. There'll be discussions back and forth in journals. And the organization looks at these and takes them into account when they come up with a change in category or, or a whole new condition. So with gaming disorder... Um, they looked at the literature before coming to that conclusion and saying, what problems do we have surrounding this? What's interesting is there's been a similar conversation happening around exercise. So can you have too much exercise? Mm. Can you be somebody who is addicted to that sense of being healthy uh, to the point that you exercise too much? So it's interesting that we have gaming disorder in there because clearly the literature was sort of siding with that and the way they petitioned, they went, we're going to decide we'll put that into this, this great big book. But then when they look at exercise disorder, they might go, we're not really persuaded. So it's not an easy, clear-cut thing. There is a lot going on that might influence these decisions. And some of them can be quite biased and could be quite stigmatised in certain ways. So gaming is a good example of that. People might think, well, what benefits are there to gaming? Or is exercise, well, you know, that's quite a good thing. You know, we want people exercising. There was a really good program on the ABC recently about obsessive-compulsive disorder. And I think the measure they were using is when it, when an obsession becomes a pathology. Yeah. 
Uh, and so when does it interfere with your daily life? Does it interfere with your social relationships and so on? Absolutely. And that's a good. Now, is there a disease that stands out for you in your book? Now, I'm holding it up mm-hmm. and it's called Unwell. What makes a disease? Is there a one particular disease in here that stands out for you that that characterises the theme that you wanted to talk about? Um, a lot of diseases that we don't consider to be illnesses anymore are the ones that I find particularly fascinating. Um, hysteria is the one that I love going back to. Uh, it's a classic age-old one. Um, and I think the reason why it stands out for me is because we have a very particular idea throughout history on what it means to be a man or a woman. And to be a woman is particularly pathologized. You know, you don't want men acting like women. You know, it's a pathology. If a woman acts like a man, well, there's, you know, it's unusual, but there's a strength to it. And so throughout history, we've pathologized the very nature of being female. Ah, no, the, 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 the word hysteria has an interesting origin, doesn't it? It does. Um, so, you know, when you can think of the word hysterectomy is probably the one that people are most familiar with today. And it refers to the uterus. You know, the womb, hysterectomy, removing the womb. So hysteria refers to a wandering womb. So it's the idea that your uterus is not actually anchored in place. So if we go far enough back and, uh, you know, the early anatomists back in Greek days, to actually identify where bits and pieces of the body were, um, they would actually take people who have been dead for, you know, an hour or so, day or so, carry them up, and your organs sag out of place. You're not alive, and bits and pieces. And so every time they'd cut the body, they'd find a kidney that was probably a bit higher, a bit lower, a little bit removed. So the uterus is a bit out so of you, place. So you're talking about the physical location of physical the organ location. in the body, really? Yes. Oh, dear. What happens when you get older? <laughs> well, <laughs> they're really sagging out of place. So the idea by it was, it was a ptosis. It was this non-anchoring of, of an organ. Um... And they would actually then blame this shifting in organs for various conditions. So it, it wasn't particularly to the uterus that they went, that wanders, all organs wander. But when the uterus itself was thought to wander out of place, that would cause women to um, behave in ways that were not considered very womanly. And again, we have the social norm overlaying this, don't we? That's right. So there's an expectation there that you should behave in a certain way. Well, I guess we do we do associate parts of the body with character traits, don't we? We say, you know, this person's got a, a, a gut for this, or oh, I haven't got the stomach for that, or you've got a big heart. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And if you go back to the Greeks with their humours as well, it's a very phlegmatic person, or they're very sanguine. You know, so we've got the humours as well. So we do refer to biology and anatomy in describing a person's personality. Um, you know, we can also go, you know, they have beady eyes, or they've got a weak chin, and that actually dates back to uh, a movement in the 19th century, going to the 20th century, when we started looking at a person's physiology to describe certain characteristics. You know, they're a bit more criminal if they've got a left hand, for instance, you know, dominant left hand. or So the way that we have always tried to identify links between personality and physiology, it dates way back. We pathologise people's personality based on just how far we think their body is responsible, and we draw a line that then goes, well, no, it's your personality, you're to blame. And hysterectomy, or hysteria rather. Hysteria, yep. Uh, one condition, or formerly known as a disease. Now, That's it's associated right. with being, well, hysterical, so... Uh, irrational, agitated, perhaps? It's shifted a little bit throughout time. So it, it, it's always indicated, you know, a, a certain amount of stressfulness, um, stress and, and heightened emotion to some extent. Um, and it's often attributed to the fact that wandering uterus 
um, needs to have a baby planted in it. So it's the idea of responsibility. You know, women are supposed to reproduce according to the biological standards of what people are supposed to do. And that expectation means, well, you put a baby in there and it will settle down back in place and now you'll perform uh, the duties of, okay, of what a woman. Okay, so now we're, we're talking about wo- uh, womanhood and yes. we actually have a, a woman who, are, who, uh, who is watching in the back of the studio or giving her away. <laughs> uh, the medicalization of things like birth, for example. So mm. it used to be the time that would be home birth that you would, that a woman and all, and who else would be around her family members and so on. And now it all happens in a clinical environment. Absolutely. Very much so in the US. So if you compare US medical system with Australian medical system, it's very much a, a medicalized system in the US. And the problem that we tend to have with the medicalization isn't so much that you're surrounded by equipment and, you know, you have experts on hand. That can be quite positive. The, the experience a lot of people have is when something is medicalized, your responsibility is taken away. So you don't feel as if you have as much control anymore because it's what the system is doing for you. And that's part of the, the whole definition of disease. Disease says, where do we draw the line between what you can do and what your body is responsible for? Well, it's removing the emotional content as well. It's, it's doing something to the emotional content. So now, Mark, you've been present at a birth, I'm guessing, have you? I have, yes. And what was it like for you to watch a baby being born? Your own child? It was my own child. So, yep, uh, I mean, I've seen a couple of babies being born, but my, I was there at the, the birth of my own son, and it, it is a very emotional experience. It's it's a, you know, an amazing time in your life. Um, there's a lot of emotion going. You're seeing your partner experience pain, and that's something that can be quite uncomfortable, but you're also seeing a new life come in, and it's a, a start of a new chapter. So there's a lot going on that you do want to be part of that story. I can remember, it, well, it's not that long ago that the men were kept out of the delivery room, weren't they? That You know, go down to the pub with your mates, have a cigar or something. Uh, it's an experience I would not miss for anything, and I'll Hang on, I'm going to get in a difficult turf here if I say the man does all the hard work. Oh, oh, oh hang on, here comes something's flying. Oh, oh. <laughs> but uh, it is a very emotional experience, and I think it was a bit like watching Aliens movie end to end, <laughs> and the tension and the joy and everything all coming together. I cannot really describe it. But the funny thing happens at the end of the birth is that the the man goes, oh. Oh, they're all, they're both safe. We have a healthy baby, a healthy mum, and he just goes collapses on the floor. <laughs> and the woman has sudden all these endorphins and goes, Oh, yeah, look what I've just done. And they're on this massive high and they're going bouncing out. Well, <laughs> I'm being slightly uh, colourful here, but it, is that something like your experience too of, of childbirth? My partner actually went drug free, which blows my mind. I mean, you know, we, we, we do laugh and joke about the, you know, the difference between the expected roles of men and women in, in childbirth, but, you know, in a situation like this, I don't have that same physiological experience that a woman would have in terms of the, the, what the body does. It's an extreme... It is. I, I, I can't begin to even imagine this experience. So watching my partner, who was on no medication, nothing was dulling the pain, uh, she had a water birth, so she was in a bathtub, and watching her go in and out of consciousness almost, it, it was, it, it was a, an amazing experience, but it was one that made me not just proud, I think, of my partner but amazed by the human body and what it can actually do. So, as you said, like, you know, it was a long night for us and my son was born and my partner was in and out of consciousness, clearly experiencing a, a lot of pain and discomfort, but then this child is born and, as you said, she gets up and we were home within 
hours practically, uh, her body just bounced right back. And I found it quite amazing that, you know, that that's what the body actually does. Um, and that's in a situation where it wasn't heavily medicalized. Now, that doesn't mean that we weren't grateful for having medical attention around us should we have needed it. But we did feel very connected to the process. And that could be something that where you do have a society that kind of says, well, we're going to pathologize this. The pathology is not so much we are going to have medical attention nearby. The pathology comes down to how much of your responsibility, your experience, your story is going to be part of this experience and how much do we listen to you and when you do have a system like you might have in the US where it's like well we're going to shuffle you in we'll put your feet up in stirrups we'll give you some drugs we'll pull the baby out of you and here's your child and you go where where was I in my yeah, story it's, it's like it's a business process isn't it that uh, <laughs> the, the job of a uh, delivery is to deliver a baby and that's it but I think I'm glad we've diverted down this topic because uh, what we're really at the heart of here is that a body isn't just pulsating blood, bones, flesh and brains and neurons and skin. We are living, breathing humans. We have all the human emotions. And that goes, I think, is right, tell me if you agree, right at the core of the what your book is about. Is that be right? It is. So really what it comes down to is the human story. So if you think about when you get diagnosed with a disease, you know, your life changes. Suddenly it, it's being diverted from what you expect it to be happening into a new pathway. And you need to rethink about your identity. You rethink about your, your journey. And so it's all part of a story. So when you are back in my pathology days and, you know, you're, you're actually drawing a line with numbers, it's a single event. It, it's a, it's a moment in your working day and doctor would also go, well, I'm going to diagnose. But the person's life has changed at that moment and the way they think about themselves has changed. So disease is beyond just being personal. It is about your story and you grieve. You know, just as you do at any time that your life story changes in a way that you didn't expect, you grieve for the story you don't have anymore, and you have to adjust. So really, at the core of Unwell is the idea that human biology, when it changes, it changes your story. It does, and here on Fuzzy Logic, let's talk about the joy of being human, and if we're not careful, uh, Michael uh, will be into spirituality very soon, but uh, here we are on Fuzzy Logic, and we're talking about what it means to have a disease with Mike McRae, who's the author of this book, and you can get it very soon, we'll give details, called Unwell. Let's have a quick music break, I think, a bit of John Butler here on Fuzzy Logic. <laughs> Now, just before the song break, we were talking about childbirth, and I was very conscious of being a couple of men talking about childbirth while Eliza was sitting up the back of the studio, and I've now dragged her up to the microphone. Eliza, <laughs> uh, your perspective on childbirth, did you want to add anything in particular to what we were saying about childbirth? Yeah, I mean, I, I felt I had to add something after throwing something at you halfway through the previous segment. Um, but it, it's such an interesting topic, especially being female, um, the medicalization of childbirth, especially in comparison to um, the American system versus the Australian, where you look at a lot of the stories that come out of America with childbirth and you compare them to an Australian system. And you like to think that something like that would never happen here where a doctor will schedule a caesarean because they've got a golf game. You think, oh, no, we've just got better checks. Does that really happen? Yeah, there, there are quite a few stories that come out of America saying women wanted to continue in labour for longer, but, you know, their obstetrician, for whatever reason, was just like, no, we, 
we need to be on a schedule, either the hospital needs to be on a schedule or you've interrupted my day and I just want to get this done and over with. Whereas in Australia, we 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 have systems in place that, you know, we have on-call rosters and, and different things. And we well, have it's, a, it's a system, but it's also a cultural thing, isn't it? Definitely. I, w- I would definitely agree with that, where we like to think that, well, I would be in this camp as well, that I, your doctor wouldn't do that because we're... Um, as mentioned in the break, I'm a medical student and so much of what we learn is patient-centred care, that the patient experience is utmost important and you wouldn't do something like when you become a doctor, giving up your golf games is oh, important. Oh, so in your coursework, so your third year medical student? Oh, only first year. Okay. Oh, <laughs> not, that, not that far. Oh, but so many couple of years away. <laughs> exactly. But, but for what you've seen so far, so the patient experience is really central to what you're what they're teaching you is that right definitely so obviously you do all the science and you learn all the science that's important you learn all your clinical skills but at every point upon learning new clinical skills it's always about consent and how do you talk to a patient about this how do you know that they know and understand what it is you need to do and why you need to do it so from things like asking a patient to take off their top so that you can listen to their heart if a patient says, I really don't want to do that, how do you work with them to be like, I understand and appreciate that and I also need to listen to your heart, so how do we find a compromise here or how do we go forward? Uh, I'm, I'm thinking actually, and I'm, I'm using this word advisedly because of our guest here, <laughs> a, a tribal witch doctor right, <laughs> would, uh, I'll explain that reference in a moment, but a tribal witch doctor is all about the personal care, right? they, they didn't have the science but people trusted and wanted to share their medical, their health experiences with that person because there was something about that person that an aura or yeah. an air of uh, trust, yeah. respect. Yeah, it's. Um, I don't know much about tribal stuff um, specifically, but if you look at natural medicines now in, in sort of a 21st Western culture, cultural context... That's still why people look out, um, uh, go towards natural therapies and alternative medicines is because um, a point that's made in Mike's book is, you know, GPs and doctors are so often time constrained with what they can do, but, you know, a natural therapies practitioner um, has the time to sit for an hour and listen to so every in and out. Today? Yeah. Did you, have a, did you have a good morning? No, uh, here's your test. I want some blood. Uh, and here are the numbers that I got out of some machine that goes ping. Yeah. Yes, yeah, very impersonal. Yeah, or, and it's easier to be, say, or come back in a couple of days and we can talk some more and then come back again in a week's time and we, I'll have the time to be able to sit with you for an hour several times a week if you need until we figure out what's going on. Often in the case of a GP especially, they've got 15-minute consultations where they need, they want to be able to sit there for an hour. They want to be able to find out about their family life and everything that's going on. Constrained, time yeah. constrained and so on. Exactly. Yeah. Now, what's back to the childbirth thing? Oh, yes. <laughs> well, a good conversation never stays <laughs> on, on topic, I believe. Uh, pain control. Now, Mike was talking about... Uh, he re- Great respect for his partner who uh, who did the delivery without any pain mm. control. What's your attitude though? If you're, let's say, imagine you're in the uh, the birthing 
Yeah. What do we call it? A studio? Yeah. A, a delivery suite. Delivery suite. I think is a. And and, it, and oh, I'm 100% give me all the drugs. <laughs> I'm I'm the complete opposite. And I know Mike's partner quite well, and I think she's amazing for the things that she can do. And I know that she chose that option because she wanted to see if she could. That uh, which sounds odd, but she wanted to test herself and say, well, I think I can do this. So let's see what it's like. And she wanted the experience. Well, you know, I, I'm really with you, Eliza, because uh, I used to go to the dentist, who was my mum's school friend. This is back when I was a, a, you know, a kid, and I'd sit in the dentist chair, and he would just suddenly whip out a drill and start drilling. And I, used to, and I got such a fit of nervousness about going to the dentist. I still don't enjoy it. In fact, I have to go back. But a major moment for me was going. You know what? Pain control. There is pride in pain control. And I just say, yeah, stick the jab in. I don't care. I don't want to feel anything for the next 15 minutes. Yeah. Go to it. It's a strange thing with um, with pain that we we do view being able to deal with pain as being a strength. Um, and that comes down to a lot of the way that we deal with disease and we kind of say, well, there is a certain amount of pain you're just expected to deal with. Uh, you know, if you're somebody who gets up in the morning and go, I've got certain aches and pains, that's just life. So people who do express chronic pain, there's a stigma to that where if they get up and the pain is of a certain threshold, they're judged as not being able to deal with it. Well, pain is one of those really difficult areas for science, isn't it? Because it's extremely, it's ultimately subjective, mm. is it not... Uh yeah, um, it's definitely subjective and the interesting thing about pain medications is that we have a lot of medications that are very good at dealing with acute pain, so things like epidural in a childbirth or opiates recovering from your tonsils being removed. So acute being short, short term, term, sharp sharp we know what the pain, the cause is we know that it's going to be time limited your body's going to heal itself we we know what's causing it we can treat it you know this is not absolute but in a lot of cases we're very good at dealing with there is a cause of pain treat the cause manage the pain the pain will go away and we'll be fine but as mike mentioned into in chronic pain opiates are uh, not very effective so just a definition chronic term being long term long term yes yeah i mean how long is a piece of string but long term Possibly you don't even know the cause of the pain or it develops, it, um, it isn't constant. Often you'll have, like with back pain, some days it'll be worse, some days it'll be less and Look, stuff like that. I, I can always remember, I was one of those little kids who ran around the place in bare feet, I still do, <laughs> climbing the wooden paling fence and I always had splinters in the, in the bottom of my feet, right? And one day I had a splinter and it was right up, you know, it was, had to go. And I was like a little boy, you know, I wasn't fussed about, you know, a bit of blood, yeah, whatevs. But my mum had to remove this splinter and she had me lie in my stomach, put her foot, my foot on her lap while she dug this thing out with a, with a needle. And I was almost hysterical. Mm. Now, I realised later that it's because I didn't feel I was in control of that pain. Mm. Absolutely. And, and uh, talking about variation in pain as well, quite often when you go into a hospital, and they, they want to understand what is your pain level, 
um, it varies so much between individuals. So, you know, you'll be asked on a scale of 1 to 10. You can have one person come in with a splinter in their foot, and they could be, you know, 6, 7, 8, or you have somebody coming in and the leg's broken or missing, and they're like, oh, it might be a 2 or a 3. So it's very hard to predict. It's very hard to measure. There is no system that we have at the moment that can objectively quantify pain. It, it's a subjective experience. How do you feel? So luckily, we do have a, a patient-centered way of evaluating that, which is ask your question. Um, but not everyone can communicate. So if you imagine somebody who might have a, um, a condition where mm-hmm. communication just isn't there. So somebody might be on the autism spectrum uh, somewhere in the non-communication end, asking them, what is your pain experience? They're not going to be able to say, well, it's sitting around about a four or a five. They don't have that ability to communicate that. So what do we do in those situations? So understanding the nature of pain and treatment, which is at the centre of suffering in, in many instances, you know, we don't even have a way of beginning to put our finger on it beyond just asking someone, how do you feel? Well, I, I do remember turning up at the emergency ward and they said, how, how would you rate the pain on a scale of one to ten? Is that standard practice? Yeah. 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 And I said, oh, nine. <laughs> Actually, the funny thing was that before I went to the uh, emergency ward, I went to a GP and he said, oh, I'm going to give, uh, without any consultation almost, he said, and he pulled out the pethidine or something. He said, I'm going to give you some pethidine. I'm going, uh, I'm not sure about it. <laughs> Maybe I should have. I don't know. <laughs> Might have been an interesting experience. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, now, uh, did you draw any conclusions from this, Mike, uh, how about pain or you, Eliza, what, what would you say, how do we approach the question of pain? I think pain is pretty much like any form of suffering and in fact we, we kind of have uh, a fairly good grasp on how to deal with pain by communicating with people and asking what is your experience of it. We don't tend to do that with a lot of other conditions and I think that's just the thing I sort of came to with Unwell was looking at this concept of disease often demarks uh, a line and it's on one side of that line we take that that responsibility factor away you know it, you're not to blame for your, your condition um, it, it's something your body is doing and so medicine is what we will do to you I, and on the other side it's you're to blame go and deal with it but there's not a lot of middle ground and so you know with pain management we do have that conversation but with a lot of other forms of suffering it's oh no we understand it's categorized that way here are the things we will do to you and that conversation tends to get lost sometimes i think i think we're on a central theme here with the book uh, mike is uh, and eliza that's uh, the question of control mm. who, who is in control of your hurt of your your health mm-hmm. and uh, as we open the show with a definition of weed a weed is something that grows where you don't want it. And here on Fuzzy Logic, I think it's time for a bit more, uh, a bit more, if the, if the uh, electronic gods smile upon us, a bit more John Butler Trio, I guess uh, Mike McRae, author of Unwell, What Makes a Disease a Disease, and a special guest medical student, Eliza. Great to have you in here with us today on Fuzzy Logic. <laughs> What makes a disease a disease? Unwell, and it'll be out in bookshops fairly soon, won't it, Mike? Yeah, I'm expecting it out this week. So pop into a Dimmix over the next week or so, and you'll see a nice, bright, colourful oh, book yeah. cover, and the word unwell on it, and you can pick yourself up a, a copy. A very ad. Well, I'm going to. I've got a copy here, and I'm going to get Mike to sign it, and I'm going to get Mike to sign my book too. He says he can't help doing a plug for his own book because I'm in the best Australian science writing anthology for 2018 for a column that I wrote for Fairfax. Uh, Very exciting and that will be out on the shelves in the next month or so. I don't have the exact date. 
And, well, disease, disease. Now, Eliza, you also joined us, which is uh, fantastic because you're a first-year medical student. We were talking about pain, chronic pain, acute pain. And chronic pain starts to bring in the question of opioids and all the issues mm. associated with that. So tell me more. Yeah, it's it's a really big issue. It's a really big issue in Australia at the moment with um, the opioid addiction crisis that we've actually got, which a lot of people associate yeah. with the US. A lot of people sort of think about the opioid addiction that is, um, you know, the crisis happening in America, where we've actually had an increase in the number of drug overdoses that's slowly climbing over recent years, um, and that links back to the pharmaceutical industry, where for years they they downplayed the whole concept of addiction. Um, you know, we tend to think about addiction as being very much illicit drugs, and yet, you know, the illicit nature of a lot of these drugs and these addictive qualities can actually have their roots in something quite innocuous where you say, I've got suffering. The doctor goes, well, I'm going to prescribe this for you, and we'll start with these medications. And we don't have that, that sense of this is something that could lead to addiction. Yeah, and with the... Um, opioid crisis, there it, it does link back into the pain issue where what pain is pathologized, what pain should we just get on with pain and find ways to cope or should we use these medications that we ha have and that's sort of where you sit on this weird dilemma that we have uh, medications that can help with pain but do they help in long-term cases and what's the responsibility of the doctor if it's worked for the past week? Do you then stop or do you start? Well, there's, there's a medical question for you, Eliza. <laughs> Does long-term opioid uh, use help with chronic pain? Or is that such a difficult question that, that, you, that uh, you can't really give an easy answer? Um, yeah, I'm going to plead ignorance on the, <laughs> on the research on that one, but um, my understanding... Um, and it could be very well wrong, but my understanding on what I've read is that long-term opioid use doesn't help with chronic pain, that a lot of the things that do help are um, lifestyle management and lifestyle changes and a certain level of uh, coping, in inverted commas, where you, yeah, where you learn how to live and find the limits of well, there's, there's life. A, but oh, okay. no one wants to hear that, though. Everyone no. wants their problem to well, be solved. Well, I guess, in a way, this is both the triumph and the tragedy of, of science and medicine, isn't it? That you can take a pill that'll cure so many things, and the expectation is that, oh, well, here's a pill to fix me. But there's cases when it just can't do that. And an analogy with the long-term pain is tinnitus. Mm. There is no cure for tinnitus that I know of other than herbal remedies, <laughs> cough, cough. Mm. <laughs> and the best strategy is you learn to live with your tinnitus. Yeah? That's You're nodding, right. Michael? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, we've come to this sort of place with disease being a thing that you can take away from somebody and return you to a state of normal, largely because we have been so successful in the past 150, 200 years with diagnosing and treating. And that all goes back to, you know, germ theory. The idea that, you know, this medicalization to the extent that we've had it, um, because we can now identify a germ that exists in your body and that causes something, we can then hit it with something, an antibiotic, it goes away and returns your state of normality. You think about how much suffering has been caused throughout history by, by microbes, and we can now control that to a point that it's actually becoming a problem again. Mm. You know, we've sanitized our world so much that mm. um, you know, we've got these superbugs that are coming back in. 
and antibiotics aren't going to be working as, as well as they used to. So we could well be returning to an age where the germ was, was a highly destructive agent. But, you know, that idea is settled so much in our brain and kind of saying the doctor can control these microbes to the point that they can make me healthy. And again. it's very difficult for the practitioner, isn't it? Because mm. the practitioner is under pressure to be the expert, to have an explanation. So in my own experience, I, I went to the specialist and I said, why am I losing my hearing? And I can tell you losing hearing, it really sucks. <laughs> it sucks a lot. And I did all the tests. I've had an MRI, CT scan, blah, 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 blah. And he said to me, I'll never forget, uh, it's genetic. And right. I'm going, uh, you haven't done any genetic testing on me. And I actually used my network to suss out what is known about the genetics of hearing loss. And there is almost no research on adult onset hearing loss. So is Xpinic, how do you, <laughs> how does the expert, Eliza, you or, or Mike as the advisor, how do you deal with that? <laughs> Part of the problem there, if you think about it, is that relationship you have with a medical expert. You know, that short time, short connection, very simple. Most people, I think, would be quite comfortable going to um, a medical expert or a life expert quite often and sitting and having a conversation where they go, you know what, your hearing's going, we're not sure why, and that really sucks. <laughs> because then you go, well, at least I feel as if my story is heard and shared and there's direction there. You know, we're, we're quite sympathetic as humans when we have somebody to sympathize with. But when you've got somebody like a GP who 15 minute consult and they might put you onto a specialist who you see every now and then and they've got to shuffle you through, they want to find something definitive because that larger, Daryl used the word holistic, and I'm not meaning that in a natural therapy sense, but I mean that in the sense that yeah. there's a, a complexity in, in health that is, yes, there could be a gene that's broken or there could be something biochemical or something physiological, but there's also the context, and that is the way you go through life. You know, there is, you know, when do you hear? When do you need your hearing? And then there's also just the judgments that may exist around that. Are you a person who may be judged for it? Or are you someone who lives in a context where most people aren't going to be too worried about that? Well, I, I did have some sympathy for him, and I don't, I'm not complaining about it because his, his manner, his, his, he wasn't bedside, what, what do you call it? His, his, the way he talked to me was good, and I was happy with that, but I was thinking, looking at him thinking, A, you don't know, but B, you feel obliged to give me a label for what's wrong with me, and I'm okay with that. That's, mm -hmm. that, that is fine. But it raises the interesting question of uh, the therapeutic effect and the placebo. Hmm. Is placebo something that you talk about in the book, uh, Mark? Not in this one. I do, did talk about the placebo effect in a previous book, Tribal Science, which sort of touched again on the whole social aspect of, of science and, and trying to build an understanding using a, a social brain. But, um, but it, it is relevant here in that placebo effect... A, is not a thing we understand very well. Um, B, seems to be a free thing that comes with anything that is a medical ritual. So whether it's you're going just taking a pill that may do something, it might do anything. But it's that, that context around it that makes us feel because there isn't an action being taken and that action is respected in, in our cultural group, then you will view your suffering in a, in a different kind of way. So it makes it actually quite hard in some ways to to understand medicine. The really weird thing about placebo, though, is it actually has some measurable physiological effects, mm -hmm. does it not? Well, I'm... 
Well, so I'm not 100% sure about the effects of placebo. I've studied it in a psychological context where there has been a lot of research in psychology about the effects of placebo. But it um, actually got me thinking about sort of the issue of autonomy where when you have been told something by a healthcare professional and you're told that this is the course to take, whether or not that course is... Uh, uh, real in inverted commas effect from a pharmacological or other substance or whether it's a placebo effect you feel like you're getting back control because you now know what you can do you you have autonomy and you have a say you can take the action to do something and I think the issue of autonomy in healthcare is is a really big issue that um, I know with a lot of things there is often the case it's like well the healthcare prof- professional is the giver of knowledge they they know things they can impart that onto everyone but how does that align with an individual's experience and their own ability to then take that information and live their lives that trust that trust is central isn't it uh now mike did you get a sense in writing this book that the the expert i'm doing the finger waving thing is under threat in so many ways so we talk about say climate change people don't trust experts the way they used to did you get a sense of that applies to the medical profession as well uh, I did but again that was probably more with my book tribal science that I really had a look at you know, the nature of um, how we build belief and that does come very much into how do we build a belief around disease as well they're both very much wedded to how our brains work in a social way so when we build a belief there's a, a lovely philosophical term for that. It's called epistemology. So epistemology is the study of, of belief formation. And anything to do with you know, uh, trying to understand the world in some way comes down to who are you listening to who's going to give you facts and understanding. So we quite often in science use the term you know, fact as if we went out and found it ourselves. You know, we went out, we dipped a thermometer in the ocean, we went up in a balloon. And we're, no, we listened to somebody and they gave us numbers and then we believed those numbers to be true and we said, well, it's a fact. And it's because we trusted them. And so different people will trust different parts of the community. And some people will go, well, I don't want to trust you. I don't feel an affinity for you because you're not part of my tribe. And that becomes very important in medicine. You know, who do we trust is giving us that information to say that's factual versus I think you made a mistake there. And that, that goes back to that whole epistemology of medicine. How do we actually form um, something called therapeutic trust, which is a term that you use to describe, um, I don't know you, but I know you're part of this profession, so I'm going to trust you as part of that profession and give is, you the right it advice. It is central. Uh, Eliza, is that something that you've been... They've talked to you much about in your training so far. I know you're only first year, but... Um, definitely. Like, um, being able to build a rapport is um, central to being able to the therapeutic relationship. I think... Um, so I also have um, a psychology degree, and that's definitely something that came up in psychology as well, is when you look at being able to give help to someone, you need to have... Um, um, a good rapport with them you need uh, to are there certain words that they co- coach you to use or to avoid in, in when you're talking to somebody and I know in, in say climate science that they say oh that this might happen that, that you know it's the conservative nature of scientists to always hedge everything they say because oh we think maybe this might happen but you know we're still and it's too nuanced and people don't really like that they just go oh, just tell me <laughs> 
there's there's definitely language that will identify you as being somebody who can and can't be trusted. Uh, there's a, a gentleman who you've probably come across, Craig Cormick, yes. um, who is, uh, he worked for the CSRO for a while, he worked for the government, and he, he's done a lot of research in the past on uh, communities and their relationship um, with science. And, you know, how do we divide those, you know, what he calls the science fanboys down one end all the way down to the other, which is groups of people who uh, are almost antagonistic towards the concept of science. I think you've got about three or four groups that you can uh, clump people in between. And they're all going to have different ways of communicating and picking up on those clues on, are you part of my tribe or not? So when, you know, people like you or I, who, who are probably identify as being the fanboys... We're science nerds. We, we do. And yeah. so when we hear things like maybe or, you know, this might happen... We have trust in that because we then go, well, that contingency, that whole sort of absence of certainty is something that we feel is a good thing because, well, it means that, you know, we understand how science works. Um, but then there's other groups who may not actually identify that as something positive. So you, what we need to do as communicators or in the case of, of medicine, if you're somebody who communicates with somebody uh, who's a patient, is have a conversation with that patient, with your audience first and learn who are they? What are the terms that they're, they're going to identify with? Quite often, I think we, we march right in, and as a communicator, we want to educate. And that means we tell. You know, I, I don't want to trivialise this, but I, I, I'm thinking of horse whispers or when I talk to my pet dog. I mean, and that sounds like a patronising way to, to view another person, but the fundamental mistake when I that people make talking to their dogs is they treat a dog like a person mm. the dog logic is not human logic and I remember I interviewed oh, a long time ago before he got his Nobel Prize Brian Schmidt and after the we went to air and he we were talking about climate science and and he was looking really exasperated and we were saying the about politics and science they don't play by the same rules. So don't use science logic to talk to political logic because you get ahead in parliament or in politics because you, you get attention, because you're noisy and because you, you have the power of persuasion. Yeah. Well... <laughs> yeah, look, it's, it's uh, something I used to say quite a lot was, you know, if you want certainty, go into politics or religion. Um, you know, you stay clear of science because science isn't about certainty. The irony being science gives you the most certain outcome that you could possibly have. Politics and religion basically being much more of a, you know, a contextual sort of um, faith-based well, outcome. Well, dog dogma says don't, don't question it. It just says here is a fact. Don't, don't argue about it. And in a way... Dogma is so much easier, isn't it? It's a, such a more comfortable existence because mm. I'm right or somebody has told me what is right. I don't need to question that. But in science we say, well, I, what I know could be overturned at any moment. And it's trust in the community around you as well. So certainty, if somebody goes, I'm certain, it does mean you can then put your trust into what they're saying and, and that gives you confidence. That gives you a, a sense that things are going to be okay. And quite often as patients, we want that. We want to sit down with the doctor and kind of go, you know, I need direction. I need some sort of predictability. And the better way of doing that is going to be, well, what is that conversation that they can talk to me in a way that's going to ease my version of suffering? What's my story like from here that... I can, I can build a new story. I can be okay if I know where I'm going with my new way of seeing myself. But that has to be a conversation that goes back and forth rather than, well, here are the facts, this is the direction, and here's the door. 
Yeah, and it's uh, you, you talked about agency during the break, Mike, and the the sense of which we feel in control or should feel in control. Do you want to pick control up? and blame are very much two sides of the same coin. Yeah. That uh, both of them define disease at a very fundamental level, and it's something we don't tend to think very much about. So we think somebody has, has defined or diagnosed a disease, have uncovered it. Here, this line is drawn. Um, but when you don't stand on that side of the line, your experience is more in your control. So you think about addiction, for instance, as a disease. It's the physio uh, physiology of your brain that makes you want to actually mm. take more of a substance. Um, on the other side, well, it's not the physiology of your brain. It is your weakness. It's your weak will. So we're talking about will with that. But the funny thing is in science, there is nothing that actually defines the edges of somebody's free will, their agency. You think you go back to Descartes when you know, he's talking about the, you know, the, the dualism of body and mind, um, we've been trying to understand this dual nature for centuries, and we're no close to understanding so we're talking about the, the, the difficult, the hard consciousness problem here. This is getting... We could get deeply philosophical <laughs> at this point, couldn't we? We, we can, and we tend to avoid it because it is a very hard question, yeah. and yet it's kind of at the core of disease. But people vary also on how much control they actually want. Like, I, I think each of us here, I, w I would guess, uh, in the studio... We want to feel in control, but some people just say, tell me what to do and I'll do it. Aren't mm. they more people more passive? Want is itself a very, you know, that comes down to, again, what is your agency? You know, want is desire, and desire still comes down to, you know, who is the person in your head who actually, <laughs> and, and, you know, we can we can go down a rabbit hole with, with that whole idea of, well, like, where do you draw the line between mm. your body that is hard chemistry, it's physics, it has direction, and it has... Um, you know, a, an outcome to it that's set in fate. You know, you don't drop an apple ten times and expect it to go up once. Um, it's going to go down every <laughs> single I, I time because of physics. On those, too many of those opioids. <laughs> now, uh, we're, we're running to the end of our time here on Fuzzy Logic with Mike McRae and our special guest Eliza. And what would be the takeaway message? What would you want? You've got if you could put it in, say, three or four sentences. What should people take away from their perception of disease having heard about this? That underlying the definition of disease is a lot of cultural complexity. There's a lot of complexity in how the brain actually works when we draw the line between something that's hard like physics and something that's soft like brain. How do you want people to respond though? What do you want them to do? What should people do themselves? It's, it's a hard part because there is no real pressure point we can have as a society other than having conversations. So it's a conversation you would have with your GP or with, you know, with your politician. So you're like representing. Would you say take control? What do you say? I think it's really broadening that conversation about disease doesn't have a simple definition of that science can answer. It's something that flexes with time. And I think if we can have sympathy towards disease having um, you know, a definition that isn't what we're used to. All right, we, we're running a tail. <laughs> and I don't even have time to, to get your perspective on this, Eliza, because <laughs> we're... We're, Fine. <laughs> we're up. It's been great to have you as an impromptu guest onto <laughs> Fuzzy Logic this morning, and I guess Mike McRae. Get out soon and buy the book Unwell, What Makes a Disease a Disease, and it's University of Queensland Press. Correct. Make sure you get the anthology, Best Australian Science Writing 2018. That will be out soon. Ask Fuzzy today is about supercomputers.